the passage that, that Tim just read for us, this one in Colossians that we're going to look at, is, um, is, to me, one of the most daunting passages of the book of Colossians, because um, I feel like I've, uh, in this passage, my role is to introduce you to the most amazing person to ever walk the earth. Um, how do you introduce Jesus? And this is this passage talks about how incredible Jesus is. And uh, there is so much that Paul packs into this section that um, we couldn't begin to cover it all. But uh, Rather than trying to tell you about him, what I want to offer are some simple ways for you to interact with him this week. Um, I could never begin to describe all that Jesus is, even in this passage, uh, but I can tell you some practical ways that you could walk away from this upcoming week knowing Jesus, knowing the most amazing person to walk the earth. So there's there's a couple of ways that we could approach this passage. We could look at why Paul wrote these things. And I don't know if you've picked up on this, but when you read a letter like this from Paul to a church, it's kind of like listening to one side of a phone conversation. You're kind of piecing together why you're hearing the things that you're hearing and guessing as to what maybe uh, questions the other person is answering. And so there are some, some theological issues that that young uh, group of Christians in Colossae were wrestling with, and that does play a role into why Paul wrote this. Um, in, in the book on Commonville that Anne-Marie mentioned that I wrote, there, I do highlight some of those issues and describe the impact of the false heretical teachings. Uh, but another approach to this passage is to recognize the genre of this section. And though this is a letter within it, there is a poem or perhaps a hymn. And that's what, what Tim was reading for us just a moment ago. Beginning in verse 15, you may notice that it has an even translated in our <clears throat> language today from the original Greek. It, it has a rhythm and a flow like that of a poem. And it's possible, like I said, that Paul is, is quoting from a hymn of that day. We can't be for certain. But one thing I do know about poetry is that you can't read poetry quickly uh, for it to really have the impact that it's intended to have. Poems have this way of forcing us to slow down and to mull over what we have read. And I think in this section, Paul is, is wanting his readers to press pause and to think uh, and to consider what this impact could have on their life. So uh, this morning I want to teach and help impart some meaning, but with a focus on ways to slow down this week and ponder particular truths. We call them sometimes spiritual practices at Bay Marin. Uh, you may know them as spiritual disciplines or spiritual exercises, but they're just uh, ways that we can make ourselves available to God for him to, uh, to meet us in his grace. And so we're going to look at some of these spiritual truths, and I'm going to suggest a spiritual practice. And as we do, I think it, it will help create that kingdom pod that we've been talking about, uh, that Uncommonville, that city or that place that's filled with God's grace. So without further ado, I want to jump back in and highlight uh, some of the verses that Tim read earlier. 
Um, if you want to grab a Bible and have it laid out next to you for this part, that's great. I mentioned I'm going to use the chat feature, or maybe if one of you wants to um, write down the reference in the chat feature and then others can see, that might actually be a, a great way to do this as well. In verse 15 of Colossians 1, Paul says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He reflects the life and the character of the Father. And um, more than just reflecting that character, he embodies it. The invisible God is now visible. Um, just a few verses later in Colossians 1.19, we read that for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ. Uh, John 1.18 tells us that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So we see that um, we can't, uh, though we don't see God directly, the better picture that we can get of Jesus, <clears throat> the better picture that we have of God. And so I kind of wanted to, to say, would you consider allowing Jesus to shape your perception and beliefs about God as Father rather than your earthly father to frame what you think about God as Father? And this is, <clears throat> this is a hard thing for us to do. Um, the role that our fathers, earthly fathers, have played have had quite possibly a longer impact on our life um, than the role of our Heavenly Father. And so we we might be tempted to first try to figure out who god the father is through the actions of our earthly father and that may or may not be accurate that way jesus reveals to us the character and nature of god the father um, the healthy starting point to know the true and healthy narrative of god is to begin with jesus um, if we live according to a false narrative, in other words, if we base our actions on, on uh, something that is not true about God the Father, we will have bad repercussions in our life. But if we know and base our actions on the truth of who God really is, it leads to uh, what, what Jesus refers to as the blessed life, a beautiful and happy life. Uh, he talks about that in Matthew 5 and goes on to describe it in Matthew chapters 6 and 7. So let me kind of give you an example or two of um, just if we were to uh, look at our earthly father first as an example of our heavenly father um, and then what it would be like to reverse that. If, <clears throat> if I think God is an angry father who only... Uh, speaks up and yells when I've done something wrong, if I think God is an angry father who is recording all my sins and never forgetting them and always holding them over me, then I will never know the freedom and happiness of life lived in the presence of a good and loving God who longs to forgive and restore. The more I see Jesus, the more I read about Jesus, he gives me a picture of the Heavenly Father who longs to forgive and restore, who, yes, does encounter anger over our sins, not at us as a sinner, but over those things that we do that separate us from him. 
And so I want to filter how I do God through the lens of Jesus. Another example, um, if I grew up with an absentee father, I could think of God as an absentee father who is aloof and has better things to do than to spend time with little old me. Um, if that's the case, then my relationship with God would be characterized perhaps by a frustrating series of prayer times in which I feel increasingly alone, reinforcing that oh, God's, God's got other things to do. He, he's not going to pay attention to me right now. But by learning from Jesus, I witness the God who incarnates and continually comes searching for me. Isn't that a radical, fresh, and accurate way for us to imagine God as Father? And we do that, we, we come to believe that as we get to see how God makes himself known to us through God the Son. So here is spiritual practice number one. Um, this week, you may choose to pick one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and read through that Gospel. Part of reshaping our view of God as Father is through pay, paying attention to the life and the teaching, teachings of Jesus, who is that perfect picture of his Father. So to immerse yourself in the Gospel writings of, say, Luke, um, is, uh, is a way that you can reform what you think about God the Father. Um, and here's how you can do that. As you read through one of the Gospels, um, as you get to the end of a chapter or as you get to the end of a particular story that Jesus was involved in, ask yourself this question, how does what Jesus said or did paint a clearer picture of what God the Father is really like? I'll put that in the chat feature as well. So as you're reading in that gospel, whatever one you choose, just every once in a while, pause. How does what Jesus just said or did paint a clearer picture of what God the Father is really like? And, and sometimes Jesus is describing what God the Father is like through the parables. Um, leaving the 99 to find the one. He is like the prodigal son's father who is waiting eagerly um, to receive the return of his son who, is, who has gone off. We see that in this example of how Jesus <clears throat> loved and welcomed back this uh, woman who was caught in the act of adultery, we see how God the Father is not the one that's trying to hold our sins over us, but wants us to remove ourselves from that sin so that we can re-engage with him. So. Um, just by taking the time this week to read through a gospel, I think that could be a powerful way to reshape the way that you think about God. And our goal is always in reading the Bible is not simply to learn something, but to continue to be reshaped ourselves into a greater likeness of the character of Christ. So we not only want to learn more about God the Father, but we want to become more like him in the way that we act. So let me use the two examples from before. Um, not only is it important to learn that the Father longs to forgive and restore, but then our lives are most whole when we offer forgiveness to those who have hurt and wronged us. Not only is it important to witness the God who lovingly pursues us, he's not an absentee father, he is with us and graciously reaches out to us, 
but we then become the type of people who reach out in loving acts of service for others. So it is that reciprocal nature. We learn about God so that we can begin to live more like him. Verse 16, we're not going to go through all of these verses just for the sake of of time, but um, in verse 16, we read that Jesus was an active part of creation. And I remember when that when that truth first was presented to me, it was kind of mind-blowing. I just didn't think of Jesus being a part of anything until the New Testament, until we read about him um, at, uh, at, at beginning in those Gospels. But the scriptures tell us that he was a part of creation all along. In John chapter 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word. And in a very poetic way, John is referring to the Word, capital W, uh, as Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to say that all things were created in this Word. Verse 16, in him, of verse 16 of Colossians 1, we read that in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have be, been created through him and for him. Um, I take uh, one of those small essays in my book and talk about how I love that Jesus um, created all things. All things were created through him. But what trips me up is they were created for him. If I could rewrite the scriptures, selfishly, I would say I would want all things to be for me. That's kind of our tendency as humans. Um, but I got to thinking about all things. This is talking about the totality of creation. Everyone and everything owe their existence to the creative work of Jesus Christ. Now, let me, um, let me kind of share some things. I did some research for this. Uh, and just the more I read things like what I'm about to share with you, it just, it blows my mind and it, it is hard for me to wrap my mind around how um, big and powerful Jesus is. Again, all things created through him, by him. Listen to some of these, these statistics about creation. The sun's diameter is a that's the across not around that's the extent of my math knowledge that i remember from high school the difference between diameter and circumference the sun's diameter is 864,000 miles which is 100 times the diameter of the earth the sun is 30 uh, 333,000 times the mass of our planet that's why it is the sun is the uh, dominating gravitational pull the earth is roughly 93 million miles from the sun and there are single stars so if you can imagine 93 million miles from the sun and we are orbiting the sun at that distance there are single stars that god created that are even larger than our orbit around the sun now you know um, that the Earth takes 365 days to orbit the sun. It's like 365 point something. And some of you are wanting me to get it exact, and I don't know exactly what it is, so I'm sorry. But the Earth takes 365 days to orbit the sun. Did you know that for that to happen, 
we are traveling at 67,000 miles an hour. I, Jesus just kind of and sent us flying 67,000 miles an hour so that we could orbit that sun in 365 days. Now, think about that. We're spinning and we're orbiting. That orbiting is 67. Keep that in mind next time you feel sick after riding the teacups at Disneyland. It's, it's, that's a ride that I don't do. The Milky Way galaxy contains billions of stars. We are a part of that galaxy. Astronomers estimate that there are millions of galaxies that each contain billions of stars. Jesus was involved in the creation of all that. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, no words, where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the ends of the world. And the stats I just quoted, and then even what the psalmist has to say describes the vastness and the mind-blowing grandness of creation. But I also wanna mention the other end of the creation continuum, the little things of creation, and specifically, I'm talking about me and you. In light of the great and glorious galaxies, we are rather small. In Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. Wow. So here is a spiritual practice for this. I want you to schedule eight minutes, eight minutes this week to watch either the sunrise or the sunset. And here's why I'm picking eight minutes. It could be longer if you want. It takes light from the sun about eight, eight and a half minutes to reach the earth. If the sun were to quit shining, earth's average surface temperature would drop to 32 degrees Fahrenheit after the first week, and then to negative 150 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the first year. In other words, we would all be living in Winnipeg. <laughs> so God has gifted us with the sun and the light from 93 million miles away takes about eight minutes to reach us. The spiritual practice, I want you to go out and feel the growing warmth of an early morning sunrise as that begins to, the sunlight begins to hit your face. Or feel the approaching coolness of the sunset and engage your senses and receive that moment as a gift from the hands of Jesus. And as you do, express your gratitude and awe in the form of a prayer to the Creator. My guess is this is a spiritual practice that many of you have already engaged in, but maybe you didn't think of it as a spiritual practice. But let this be um, a way for you to begin your day or wrap up your day with this sense of awe and encounter Jesus through that. And then uh, verse 17 
Jesus has the whole world in his hand. Um, in verse 17 of Colossians 1, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Okay, what I'm going to be saying in the next few minutes is really directed at control freaks like me. If you can relate even the tiniest bit, then I want you to, to wrap your mind around the beauty of, of this. This is a gift that God has for us in Jesus, that in Jesus, all things hold together. So in other words, not only did Jesus create the universe, he sustains it. I read this, this uh, quote, I'll read a portion of it from Dallas Willard, and he was commenting on this passage. He said, everything hangs together in Jesus. The other end of that is 2 Peter 3.10 with this wonderful statement about the end times. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and the elements will be dissolved with fire. Now, when I first read that, um, he describes that as a wonderful statement. I would describe that as a terrifying statement, except um, that it's, it is in the control of God as these things are taking place, just as I am. Willard goes on to uh, explain the word translated dissolved really means turned loose. Everything will be turned loose, will come apart, dissolve. So right now, in him, all things hold together, but he is gonna make a new creation that takes place after he has turned loose of this world. And then Dallas Willard goes on to reference a couple of stories in the Bible. When Jesus turned the water into wine, he just readjusted his hold on the matter that made up the water. And when you see the waves responding to Jesus' words, they're responding to the one who holds them together anyway. And that's from a book uh, by Dallas Willard called The Allure of Gentleness. Uh, it's a book on apologetics, uh, but it's how um, apologetics, according to Christ, are done with a gentle heart. Uh, so Jesus holds all this together. And this truth leads me to believe that I can be open and vulnerable in confessing my inability to hold it together. How many of us just in the last few months have set as a goal, I just got to figure out how to hold it together. I got to figure out how to hold things together to get through this season that we're in. There's a, there's a passage in Isaiah really powerful where Isaiah has this encounter with God. He's in the temple and Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah says, woe is me. I am undone is the way it's worded in the King James. I am undone. Isaiah is confessing that his little world is spinning out of control. I am undone. I can no longer hold things together. Now we don't often think of this, but the root word of disintegrated is integrity or integrated. Someone with integrity is someone who acts in alignment with their identity. Um, the opposite of integrity is disintegration. Um, integrity is having your act together. So I say all that to say that 
when we fall short of God's glory, when we make a mess of our lives, and when it feels like everything is a mess around us, it feels like things are disintegrating. It has a way of undoing us, of causing us to crumble apart. And yet it is Jesus as Savior who holds all things together. Even more, he holds me together when I have begun falling apart. On a grand, the grandest scale, the whole universe is sustained by Jesus and prevented from falling into chaos. And so am I. It is Jesus who sustains me, who keeps me from completely falling apart. I've mentioned this before, and it's, it's, a, it's something that I try to imagine when I pray. When I pray, especially when I feel like things are falling apart, I, I close my eyes and I picture God seated on a throne wearing a t-shirt that says, I got this. I got this. And it really changes my perspective and my blood pressure as I'm laying those requests before him. So here's the third spiritual practice. We've talked about maybe you could choose to read through the Gospels. Um, you could catch a sunrise or sunset. Spiritual practice of confession. And by that, I just mean this. Take time this week to confess, to acknowledge the ways that you are trying to hold everything together. How's that been working for you? Acknowledge that Though you work hard to hold everything together in you and around you, what impact is that having on your body and on your soul? And this is probably an, a spiritual practice that maybe is best done with journaling or sitting down with a good friend and just acknowledging these things. Uh, what, what impact is this having? Me continuing to try and hold it all together. Um, what would it be like for me this week after I write down all of these things that I feel like are pulling me apart, if I wrote down to next one, to each one of those on a separate column, God has got this. God has got this. In him, all things hold together. And then... Um, I'll wrap up with this. In the next few verses of Colossians 1, particularly verses 19 through 23, there's a word that's mentioned a few times, and uh, it's the word reconcile. And it's, it, it's, it's a biblical term, but it's also, maybe it's one that you've heard used um, in marriages or um, for reasons for a divorce, irreconcilable differences. Well, to reconcile is to move from an enemy to a friendship. Uh, it is to move from hostility and opposition to peace. Um, these verses in Colossians 1 talk about um, it is through Jesus, this is verse 20, through Jesus, God is pleased to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. And then he talks about this separation. We were alienated from God. We were enemies in God's mind, but now he has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present us holy in his sight and without blemish 
and free from accusation. So we have this picture of being distanced and um, uh, enmity with God to now being at peace in a right relationship with him because of Jesus. And in just a moment when we celebrate communion, we are, we are celebrating that it is because of Jesus that we can be reconciled. In Genesis 1, at the end of Genesis 1, God looked at all he created and said, it is good. It is very good. But by the time we get to Genesis 3, we read that soon all that God had created was marred by humankind's sin and rebellion. And so in these verses of Colossians, Paul is using this word reconcile, and it's a word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament. But unique kind of to this area, Paul adds a preposition to kind of intensify the meaning of reconcile. So Paul's not just saying that Jesus reconciles us. He uses this extra word that means thoroughly, completely, or totally. Jesus completely and totally reconciles us. Through Jesus, we have total and complete and full reconciliation. And this is all because of what Jesus has done for us. In 1 Corinthians 5.17, it's a verse that maybe some of you might know. If anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. But verse 18 tells us how that happens. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So here's the spiritual practice that I want to wrap up with before we go into our time of communion. Um, and maybe I, I don't think I've ever thought of this as a spiritual practice, but this week, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, would you consider doing that this week? Have you relinquished your life to the saving care of Jesus? Have you recognized that Jesus is the way to experience peace with God and all of your undoneness and all of your disintegrated feelings and life? Have you recognized that Jesus is the way to experience peace with God? And would you consider this an invitation to slow down this week, to get quiet, and invite Jesus to reconcile you with God. How do you do that? I think in the quietness of that, you just pray. You enter into a dialogue, a conversation with God. You express your undoneness. Isaiah used the phrase, woe is me. Say it however you want. But then turn to God and say, "I." I need Jesus because he's the only one that can hold this together. And maybe after you do that, um, maybe you contact a close friend who has already made that commitment and, and share that with them. Um, email me, reach out to me. I would love to talk to you about it. And, and once you are reconciled through Christ with God the Father, what's next? Then we, we can have a conversation about that. But maybe the most important action step for you this week is to place your faith 
in the Jesus who created you, the, uh, the Jesus who sustained you, the Jesus who is holding you together and who reconciles you, brings you into a peaceful relationship with God the Father. Let's celebrate communion. We are recognizing that communion is for those of us who acknowledge that Jesus is the great reconciler. Um, for you, maybe communion is your way of saying, okay, for the first time, I, I see this and I am receiving Jesus as that reconciler. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. It says this, Paul says this about Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. This is what we celebrate. We celebrate how through one body, the body of Christ, and through his shed blood, we are reconciled. Our relationship is put back into that place where it was in Genesis 1, where God looks at us as his creation and goes, oh, this is good. This is very good. Let's celebrate now. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for, yes, for wowing us with your incredible power and strength and your grandness. And in this moment, we are humbled by your loving sacrifice that brings us peace. And it is in your magnificent name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.